Good morning. Well, you may recall, uh, last week we continued our series of Captive Life. We were in Colossians chapter 3, so if you would go ahead and grab your Bible, we'll be in Colossians 3 this morning. Colossians chapter 3. Last week we talked about, uh, if we're going to live a captive life, it's going to require a choice. It's going to require a daily, moment-by-moment choice as we seek to be captive to Christ, which means He holds our attention, uh, which means He gets our affection, He gets all of us, not just a part of us, but all of us. And part of the way that we do that is what Paul says, we've got to set our minds on things that are above, we've got to seek things that are above. And if you remember right, that wasn't a suggestion, was it? No, it wasn't. It wasn't a suggestion. It was a command. Paul commands us to think, seek things that are above, to set our minds on things that are above. And he tells us the reason why. He says it's because our identity has shifted. Our identity has shifted. We were once a child of wrath. We are now a child of God. We stand in the righteousness of Christ, right? But not only has our identity shifted, but so has our focus. Formally, our focus is about us, and about mine, right? But now it's about Christ. Paul says that Christ has become our life, right? He's not, a, again, not a part of our life. He has become our life. And when our security or when our identity is secure in Christ, when, when uh, he is our security, when we're standing in his righteousness and our focusness is no longer on us but on him, It puts us in a position that supernaturally, what flows out of us is compassion, kindness, patience, humility, forgiveness, love, and gratitude, right? Those are the things, like a sponge, right? If if, if a sponge is put into water, soapy water, and you squeeze that sponge, what comes out of that is soapy water, the same thing, right? When, When the world squeezes us, these are the things that ought to come out of our lives. And so this morning, Paul's gonna build on that thought as we can continue in chapter three. Uh, But what I want you to see this morning is that if we're gonna continue to live a captive life, then something has to change in our lives. That's what Paul's contention this morning is that something has to change in our lives. In fact, something has to be burned away so that new growth can happen. Something has to die in order that new growth can take place in our life, okay? And so this morning, what I want you to see is that a captive life is forged in the fire. It's forged in the fire. Yes, we're going to have an uplifting talk this morning. So Colossians 3, go ahead and meet me there. Verse 5, that's where we're going to begin. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5. This is the word of the Lord. This is Paul writing. He's speaking to Christians. Here's what he says in verse 5. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. He defines them. He says, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which Paul defines as idolatry. He says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. And yet in these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now... Paul says a change has taken place, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. He says, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, Paul says, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all, and he's in all. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. So a couple years ago, 
Jordan and I got into this TV series called A Man in the High Castle. Anybody watch that? Handful of you? Man, so we got, we got into it until obviously it goes weird and then we're creating drama for the sake of drama and then it's like, all right, when aliens are involved, we're done. Um, but in this particular story, it tells this, it's kind of this narrative of what would have happened if, world, if, if Nazi Germany would have won World War II. And so it paints this kind of really creepy picture of what could have happened. And you can picture this, the United States, if you picture a map of the United States, picture the Midwest on over to the East Coast would be occupied German territory. Shows a picture of a Nazi symbol. When you walk into, down, uh, into Times Square, downtown New York, you would see a big Nazi symbol up on that big billboard, that big building. I mean, it's, it's, man, it is strange. And then on the other end of the of the United States is occupied Japan territory. So all of the West Coast would be occupied uh, Japan territory. So it paints a picture too of you walk into San Francisco and it's just, I mean, it looks like what Japan looks like. I mean, it is, it is strange. And then there's this little sliver of land that they call the safe zone that is right in the middle, kind of goes on up the, the Midwest. Well, there's this character, his name's Joe. Joe has grown up his whole life in uh, Nazi Germany uh, territory in the United States. And he's a part of kind of a resistance movement. And so there's a particular scene in in an episode where uh, Joe gets into a a big truck that's loaded with weapons, and he is going to take those weapons across the country into the safe zone where there's a group of people, part of the resistance, who are ready to fight for freedom. Well, there's this particular point in the story where Joe is cruising across the, uh, the states as we know them, and he, he has a tire blowout on him. And of course, you know, you've got to create the drama here. Of course, he doesn't have anything to fix the tire, and so a Nazi Germany officer shows up. And, and he's got some tools to help Joe, and so he kindly does that. He helps Joe, gets the tire fixed, and gets Joe back on the road, and they're having this conversation. Um, about life, and he ends up providing them lunch, all these things. But there's this moment in their conversation where all of a sudden, out of the sky, you see these white flakes that are falling down out of the sky. And, and, and Joe asks the officer, he's like, what is that? And the officer just nonchalantly said, oh, it's, it's Tuesday. That's the hospital. They're burning bodies that are no longer, uh, no longer can help the state. And Joe is like dumbfounded. I mean, he's looking at this officer and he's like, what? And I remember sitting there watching the show too and I'm thinking, oh my gosh. Like this is a real thing, right? They're burning bodies that are no longer, uh, can no longer contribute to the state. And then I started thinking, I was like, you know, in a, in a really strange way, the Christian life is not much different. And here's what I mean by that. When you and I agree to follow Jesus, we agree that we are no longer, um, we're no longer living for this world, but we're living to the, for the one to come. And a part of that process is this dying to self where you and I every day choose to give up our life and, and die to the things of this world. It's... It's this brutal process, the Christian life is this kind of brutal process of every day where we choose to pick up our cross, where we follow Jesus, and oftentimes it's not pretty, as you and I choose daily to die. 
You know, this is what Paul's talking about. He's helping us see that in the salvation moment, we enter the fire and Christ begins to burn away our old nature and he replaces it with a new nature as he forges a new person. So in that salvation moment, what's happening is, is that Christ is, or you're entering into this process where Christ is coming into your life and he's burning away your old nature. And he's doing that so that your new nature, born of the spirit, can live in you. And so that's what we're gonna talk about this morning, okay? So uh, there's a couple things that I want you to see. If we're, gonna, if we're gonna live a captive life to Christ, and if we're gonna live, uh, and if we're gonna experience the new life that Christ has for us, then there's a couple of things that you and I are gonna have to do. And the first one is this. We're gonna have to be willing to jump in the fire. You and I are gonna have to be willing to jump in the fire. Paul says it very clearly. He says that we are to put to death what is earthly in us. So put it to death. Cut off its life source. And just like he identified last week what the things that we're supposed to focus on that are above, this week he defines what is earthly. He writes this. He says, here's the things that we're to put to death. He says, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which again, Paul defines as idolatry. But this is not an exhaustive list. If you keep going down and you read in verse 8, he would also say that we're to put away anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk. Paul would even go so far as to say, he says, hey, and even quit lying to one another. I guess there's a lying problem in the Colossian church. I, I don't know, but he says, quit lying to one another. Tell the truth. You know, in the New Testament, other areas of the New Testament, Paul's writing to different churches, specifically to the church in Corinth and to the church in Ephesus. And, and he would even say things like this. He would say that those who are sexually immoral, who are idolaters, I, adulterers, those who are greedy, who are thieves, they're drunkards, revilers, or even swindlers. He says this. He goes so far as to say that these folks will not enter the kingdom of God. This is a big statement that Paul makes. Henceforth, the reason why Paul says that we are to put these things to death. In one particular place in the New Testament, Paul says that these things should not even be named among us as a church, as a community, as a body. And so let's talk about this, the idea of putting things to death. If we're going to adhere to Paul's words, if we're going to embrace and jump into the fire, we've got we've to think through this process of, of death. First and foremost, you need to know that it is a command. Just like last week when Paul says we're to seek the things that are above, it is also a command. It's not a suggestion that Paul's making. It's not a good idea. He's not saying, hey, when you feel like it or hey, when it's convenient, he's saying, no, no, no. Each and every moment, every single day of our lives, we are to be putting these things to death. Secondly, it's important to note that to put something to death requires an action. It requires an action, but not a one-time kind of an action, but an ongoing action. Here's the reason why. This command is set in the present active, just like last week. It's present active. Again, it, it's not like a one-time thing where I put it to death one time. It's at every moment of every single day, you and I as Christians are commanded to put to death the things that are earthly in us. Now, when we consider death, I think it's helpful that we consider it in this way. It's a process, right? If you've ever been a part of a loved one dying or, um, or you, you've experienced that process, uh, death is a process, right? Um, sometimes it happens soon. Other times it takes a long, long time. Either way, it is a process. Here's what I mean in the Christian life. Um, maybe some of you can relate to this. So you heard the gospel and you believed. And from that moment on, 
you were able to put away a particular sin in your life, right? God just, God just gave you freedom in that particular sin, right? That, that one, one day you were doing this, the next day you're set free from it, right? Um, sometimes it happens quick. Other times it's a lifelong battle. Uh, maybe you came to Christ and, 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 and God's done some great things in your life, but over the course of your, of your following Jesus, right, there's this struggle that you have. It's a sin struggle in your life. It's a battle, and it's a lifelong battle. What you need to know is that no matter where you stand this morning, it's a process. But the point here is that every single day, you and I are working towards the command to put those things to death. Right, as uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that each and every day, right, we ought to be transformed from one degree of glory to the next. So every day, no matter the process, you and I are entering into this journey, so to speak, of putting these things to death so that we may live to Christ. Now, if we're going to do that, there's three things that we need to be able to do. Three keys to this particular putting these things to death. The first one is this. You've gotta be able to define the source. You gotta be able to define the source. If you're gonna put a sin, a particular sin in your life to death, you've got to be able to define the source. You've gotta ask yourself, what is the source of these desires? What's driving these things in my life? What's driving my lust? What's driving my need for more? What's driving my impurity? What is driving these evil thoughts? What is driving my anger? What is driving my gossip? What is driving these things in my life? And, and really, the starting point is four particular things. Almost always, you can trace this back to, uh, to, the, to the source of, of your problems. The first one is approval. The second one is comfort. The third is control. And the fourth is power. These are what, what, what Tim Keller would argue is the source idols of our heart that drives our sinful behavior. And so this morning, what is it that's driving the sin in your life? If you're going to put it to death, then you need to understand the source that is driving that sin. The second thing that you need to do is you need to be able to determine if you are feeding those desires or if you are choking them out. Are you feeding those desires or are you killing those desires? Desires. The great theologian N.T. Wright, he once said, I love, I love what he said, he goes, all Christians have the responsibility to investigate, notice the word he uses, the lifelines of whatever sins are defeating them personally, and then to cut them off without pity. So the responsibility that you and I have in our lives is to cut off the lifelines that are feeding the source of the sinful desires and the sin that I'm in. We have to choke it out. We have to kill it. We have to cut off the lifeline. But here's the deal. In order to do that, you have to hate the sin. And I think far too many people, if we're really honest, and I think we should be honest this morning, is that we love our sin. We find comfort in our sin. We find approval in our sin. We find power in our sin. We find control in our sin. And so if we cut off our sin, then we lose these things. That's why they're the source. And so we return back to them because they feed those four things in our lives. And what 
what Paul is saying is, no, 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 we, we've got to cut those things off. We've got to refuse to put ourselves in situations that feed these desires, and we've got to cut them off. Just you, you got to cut off the blood to the life, right? Like, you don't have life if you don't have blood pumping in your body. You got to be able to cut it off. That's what Paul's saying here. I love what uh, N.T. Wright, he, he says that we've got to cut it off without pity, It means instead of running to it, we cut it off, and we're not sad, we're not going to apologize for it, but rather we are going to be so serious about following the Lord, understanding that when we put to death these things, we actually find life, that we're going to cut them off without pity, without regret. The third thing that we've got to do, and I think this might be the most important thing, and usually this is the thing I think that we oftentimes miss when we talk about putting off sin and killing sin, we've got to direct our desires to something better. We've got to direct our desires to something better. As I mentioned earlier, we've got to define the source. We've got to determine if we are feeding it or choking it. But then deliberately, we've got to choke it out by refusing to feed the desires and then replace them with something of greater value. And you're going to see this, right, in this particular text when Paul says in verse 5, he says, put to death. In verse 12, he's going to say, then put on. Right? It's this comparative analysis that when we put something away, you've got to fill that hole with something. Right? So if you're receiving approval from some particular sin in your life, if you put that away, you've got to receive your approval from something else because your heart is going to run to something that can feed its approval. If you are struggling with comfort and you put something away, you've got to fill it with something else. You've got to fill the jar with something else because if you don't, your sin will. So Paul is saying put off and then Replace it with something better, something greater. By the way, that something greater is Jesus. I know that that's, you know, it's a Sunday school answer and maybe that's not as practical as you want it to be, but I'm telling you, um, it works. It works. When I get my approval from Jesus, I don't need my approval from you or from others or from social media. Right? If my comfort comes from Christ, then it doesn't come from a vacation. By the way, you always have to come home from your vacation. Right? If I'm gaining my approval from social media and posting all this stuff on social media, you still have to live with yourself. And yet Christ is saying, hey, listen, I see you, I know you, I love you, you stand in my righteousness, you're not clothed in your own sin and shame, but you're clothed in me. That's lasting. That never changes, right? Romans 8 reminds us that the, there's, there's no distance that you can run that you can outrun God's love. You can't outrun him. You can't outpace him, right? If, if work provides you a level of power, right, you still have to come home and live with yourself. So the way you treat people or the way you gossip about people or all of these things, listen, they're not lasting. And what... Paul would say is that Christ is the only lasting thing that can satisfy that hole that you're seeking to fill with all of these other things, right? And so we define the source. We determine if we're feeding it or we're choking it out. And then thirdly, we direct our desires to something bigger, something greater. So let's have a little practice. Practice makes perfect, right? So let's do a little practice. Say your struggle is covetousness, 
right? Like you just struggle. Something in you just wants more. I just want more stuff. I want another vacation. I want more cars. I want a bigger house. I want, I want, I want, I want. Maybe that's you. Maybe that's your struggle. Well, you've got to define the source. What is driving the source of that need, that desire? Right? What's the source of it? Is approval? Is it power? Is it comfort? Is it control? Right? You've got to define the source. And then you've got to determine, am I feeding this desire or am I choking it out? Right? Am I putting myself in a position to kill that desire? Do I spend more time on my phone scrolling through Amazon or uh, maybe it's looking at bigger houses or better cars or maybe it's looking on Instagram and you're scrolling all these people's uh, vacations and their perfect life, which by the way is not a perfect life, right? Nobody wakes up and the first thing out of bed snaps a picture and puts it on their Instagram. Like nobody does that, right? So here we are in this never-ending loop of wanting more and all of these things. Are you killing it or are you feeding it, right? And then we've got to replace that desire with something more, something that's lasting, something that's never going to fail you, that's never going to run out, right? And here's the deal. The only thing that will do that is Christ. And so you have to work through, Lord, I need to find my approval. I need to find my comfort. I need to find my control. I need to find my power in you and not in these things, not in more stuff. Because again, somebody's always gonna have more. Somebody's gonna always have nicer. Somebody's always gonna have what you think that you need or you want. But what your heart needs is Christ. And that's it. So number one, if we're going to enjoy new life in Christ, if, if the old nature is going to be burned away and the new nature is going to come um, out of the ashes, so to speak, we've got to jump into the fire. And then secondly, I want you to see this. We've got to embrace the journey. We've got to recognize that the Christian life is a journey. In fact, it's a journey of constantly and continually being forged in the fire It's a great reminder that Paul gives us in verse 7. He says, In these you too once walked when you were living in them. And then after listing a long line of sins in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, here's what Paul says, really interesting. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, and Paul says, he says that such were some of you. He says, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. Here's what Paul's saying. That no matter who we are or where we come from, we are all in the same boat. We're all in the same boat. Every one of us, no matter how old you are, how young you are, we're all in the same boat. What Paul is saying is that we are all broken and desperately need of God's grace. Every single one of us. We're all on a level playing field. And I think it's a helpful reminder that until we stand before Christ, we are all on a journey of becoming like Him. And we should never forget who we are, where we've come from, and what God has done in our lives. You know, my son, uh, Lane, he, he loves Mike Trout. He's actually obsessed with Mike Trout. We watch his documentaries and highlight videos all the time. Um, and, and it's interesting because, you know, he's one of the greatest baseball players of all time. He's worth $150 million. Can you imagine that? Worth $150 million. But if you know Mike Trout at all, and if you've watched a documentary or read a book or, or any of those things, if you know anything about him, you would know more about who he is and where he comes from than what he does on the field. And the reason being is because he talks about it all the time. He's from a little town, a little small town, upstate New Jersey. 
And, and if you were to ask him, and reporters do oftentimes, they say, hey, Mike, tell us a little bit about yourself. He always talks about where he comes from. And the reason being, Mike says, is because I never want to forget where I'm coming from, because if I forget where I'm coming from, I'll forget where I'm headed. I'll forget where I'm headed. I think that's true. If we forget where we come from, then we will forget where we are headed. And all that God has done in the journey, forgetting where we come from puts us on a pedestal above everyone else. It puts us in a position of judgment rather than accountability. When we don't recognize that we're broken just like everybody else, it puts us in this position where we're looking down on everybody else rather than looking at them eyeball to eyeball, recognizing, hey, you know what, I'm broken and we're on the same journey. We've got the same destination. And so it's, it's an attitude of humility as we help one another to get towards the destination that we're on. It's a journey. You know, there's great power when we realize that the destination is just not as sweet if we get there and we're all alone. There's great power when we realize that we're all headed to the same destination, but if we get there and we're all alone, man, what's the, what's the point? The journey is about remembering where we came from so that we can appreciate where we are, where we are headed, and all the people who helped us get there along the way. I love what Paul writes in verse 11. He says, here, speaking of the Christian community, he says, there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He says it takes all of us. This week I read a a really moving story of a lady who was diagnosed with cancer. Um, You know, and it's such an inspiring story. Here's what she said. She said, you know, when I was diagnosed with cancer, my husband and I, we gathered the family together and she said, we wept, a lot of tears, all of those things. She said, I couldn't bear the thought of, you know, not being there on the wedding day of when my daughter gets married and, you know, seeing my son graduate from college and high school and all those things, right? She said, I was dealing with all of that. But she said, you know, surprisingly, the biggest uh, fear that I had in in this diagnosis was, was not the cancer, it was not the disease, it was the chemo room. And she said the reason being was because I knew that I was gonna spend so many hours with a bunch of people around me who were depressed and dying. And she goes, I just, I couldn't bear the weight and the thought of this is my community. But she said that was true until she stepped into the chemo room And she said, everything changed from that point on. In fact, here's what she says. I think it's really great. She says, the chemo room at my oncologist's office wasn't what I expected. She says, it wasn't a quiet place and it certainly wasn't sullen. It was a chatty place. It was full of laughter and noise. And this was the space where people came together and they shared their stories. We talked about our kids and provided one another with makeup tips and wig shopping advice. It was full of mothers and sisters and friends, grandmothers, grandfathers, spouses, and singles. It was loud and boisterous, full of life. It was the complete antithesis of what we had expected. In the end, for me, chemotherapy was about more than the drugs, the recliner, the experience of sitting there receiving my treatment. It was about the people I met and the lessons I learned. You know, to the outside world, uh, people may look at Christians and think, man, gosh, they're boring. They don't have any fun. 
but to those who have said yes to Jesus, who are in the Christian community, understand that life is to be had as we die, as we put to death the things that are evil in us, the things that are earthly in us. It's you and I who know that true, true life, true joy, true happiness is found as we die. As you and I daily choose to pick up our cross and we follow Jesus, and as, as, as he burns away the old flesh and brings about the new nature given birth by his spirit, there's new life there. There's new joy there. There's something that the world can't offer us. And so the world may look at us and think, oh my gosh, why in the world would I ever want to tether my life to a book that was written 2,000 years ago that has no you know, application for today, that is useless? Why in the world would I ever want to do that? Well, Paul says that, that, that the, the gospel um, is foolish to know those who don't believe, but it is power to those who are being saved. For us in the Christian community, while we are dying every single day to our old nature, we are, we are being made new. And we are being transformed into the new life of Christ. And so, yes, maybe today we stand here and we say, you know what, I'm not who I would like to be. I'm not as far as I'd like to be, but I'm on the journey and I'm embracing this journey and Christ is making me new and I'm content with that. I'm content with allowing Christ to enter into my life, to change my heart from that inside out. And I know that he's making me new. And as he's doing that, I'm experiencing the life that the world can't offer. That's the power of the Christian community. And it's you and me linking arms, just like the young lady talked about in the chemo room. It's you and I linking arms on this journey with a direction and a destination that Christ has given us. And we link arms and we do it together. And we do it with a smile on our face, again, as God is putting away the old nature and bringing about new life in Christ. That's amazing. That's an amazing reality that you and I get to experience that the world doesn't understand apart from Christ. And so we invite them into that. Again, as we daily choose to pick up our cross and follow him. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, we come to you today and we thank you for the work that you have done in our lives, in each of our lives, the growth that we've had. God, I pray that you help us to recognize that the Christian life is not solely about the destination, but it's the journey getting to the destination. It's a journey of death. It's a journey of dying to self. It's a journey of putting to death what is earthly in us so that we might live to you. And Lord, I pray that we do. I pray that each and every day, Lord, we do what we need to do, Father, to put away the things that are earthly in us that we might experience the true and lasting life that is in you. Father, I pray that even in the stillness of this moment, Lord, I pray that you would begin working on our hearts, Lord, revealing the source of our sin. 
God, I pray that you would help us to see, are we choking it? Are we feeding it out? Are we continually putting ourselves in positions Father, where we're feeding these desires rather than choking them out, rather than killing them. And God, I pray that Father, as we recognize those things, Lord, I pray that you would enter into our lives. I pray that you would begin to do that work and then replace our wants and our desires with something far greater and far better. God, I pray that you would give us Jesus. I pray that he would be enough for us. I pray that he would fill the cup. He would fill the holes in our hearts. God, that he would bring about lasting change. God, and I pray that for anybody in the room, Lord, who is experiencing just a lifelong battle with sin, Lord, I just pray, God, you free them from it right now. God, as they come to you, Lord, I pray that you give them freedom. I pray that you transform their heart. I pray that you satisfy the need in their heart. God, I pray that we would have many different stories to tell about how you came into our lives and you transformed us from the inside out, Lord, that we experienced lasting change, not just one month change or one week change or two months change, but Lord, we experienced lasting change where we can look back years from now and go, God, It was only because of you, by the power of your spirit. God, and for those in the room, Lord, who have a hardened heart, I pray that you soften it. I pray that you open their heart and their mind to hear from you even right now, Lord, that there's hope, number one. There's hope in you that, Lord, you can transform their their lives. Number two, that you will transform their lives as they give it give their heart to you. God, and I pray that for the people in the room who maybe have been hurt um, by somebody's sin, Lord, I pray that you would extend, you would remind them of the forgiveness that they have in you, that they'd be able to extend that forgiveness, true, lasting forgiveness to that person. And I pray for all of us in the room, Lord, that we would be a community of folks who God, we don't judge, but rather we enter into the journey, recognizing that we're all broken too, we're desperately in need of God's grace, and that we're all headed to the same destination. Lord, I pray that we'd link arms together as we move closer to you, and you transform us individually and then corporately as a people. God, help us to be a family who do not look down on one another, but lift each other up to you, pray for each other care for one another, hold one another accountable to the life that you have for us. Lord, I pray that you would empower us by your spirit even now, Lord, to see you, to be filled by you, and to be transformed by you. Father, we come to you today recognizing that only you can do this work. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.